There's no better place to lose yourself and find yourself than between the covers of a book. Hi, I'm Ann Bocock, and it's time to go between the covers. From mystery to adventure, from romance to history, I interview authors of all genres. Join me for in-depth conversations into their creative processes, their struggles, and of course, their successes. This episode was originally streamed live and includes viewer questions. Enjoy. The book, The Logger Queen of Minnesota, is about family and inheritance, estranged sisters, Midwestern values, and beer. It's the story of women in a man's world of beer making, and the characters, well, just about everyone in the book is a woman, and they're strong, determined, capable, quirky, and if you're like me, you're going to think about them long after you finish this book. And guess what? Many of them are grandmothers. The author is with me today. Please welcome J. Ryan Stradle, author of The Lager Queen of Minnesota. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for choosing my book. I'm honored. I loved the book. First of all, I want to be friends with these women. Oh. <laughs> they are no-nonsense, I guess, Midwestern characters. So thank you. Thank you for that. You dedicate the book to your two grandmothers. And they, I believe it said, I hope I get it exactly right, to Doris and Esther, grandmothers who could and did. Yeah, they, they were each a uh, pretty big influence for the character of Edith. Doris, in fact, uh, worked as a dietary aide in a nursing home, just as Edith does at the beginning of the story. And just like Edith would do little things to help out, in particular, the uh, residents of the nursing home that didn't have visitors. And uh, Esther grew up on a farm, was a farm woman her whole life, eventually ran one after her husband died at age 57, and just had that kind of pragmatic, no-nonsense approach to life that was a big influence on me. So these were the women I grew up with, the women that raised me. They raised you. These are role models for characters in your book. I didn't know that backstory, but knowing that now, absolutely, I see that. If you could just indulge me for a moment, the first two paragraphs in the book are about Edith. And if you would yeah. read that, I think we'll all get a flavor of who Edith really is. I'm, I'm happy to, thank you. It was July 5th, 2003, and Edith Magnuson's day hadn't been too bad so far. She'd just taken a rhubarb pie out of the oven and was looking for her favorite tea towel when she saw a grasshopper leap onto the white trim of her windowsill. She didn't like the idea of that bug sitting there all vulnerable, so she gently poked at it with the handle of a wooden spoon. As she hoped, it leapt into the grass, vanished into safety. She felt herself exhale. Then she felt terrible. Maybe the little bug just wanted a vacation somewhere, and then she came along and ruined everything. Edith, for one, never had a vacation anywhere, never really had a break of any kind, but then again, she never intended to take one. Things were pretty decent where she was, and she didn't ever see the point of complaining, especially in a world that never once ran a want ad looking for a bellyacre. Never ran a want ad looking for a bellyacre. Do you get more <laughs> Midwestern than that? <laughs> there was something else a little it, it, down in, in the book that I had written down that you wrote 
And it was, Edith was only 64 years old, but if she died right then, she would have felt the most important things a Minnesotan woman or man can feel at the end of their lives. She'd done what she could, and she was of use. She helped. Yeah. Tell me what that means to you. Wow. That basically defines a lot of the women I grew up with in Minnesota. I mean, besides my grandmothers, my biggest influence on my life and as a writer was my mom, who always wanted to be a writer herself, uh, got an English degree when I was uh, about 10 years old. She went back to school once my brother and I were a little older uh, and completed her degree and you know set out to write poetry and fiction. Unfortunately, uh, she passed away 15 years ago, uh, well before I even published my first novel. But I think of her every day I write, and I think about writing the kinds of books that she'd want to read if she were alive. So I feel like each book I write is an attempt to stock her library in heaven. Um, so in such as a way of keeping her alive in my heart, I write characters that are pulled from my memories of her and my observations of her life experience. And a quote like that is a line she would have said. Jay Ryan, that was so beautiful, I could stop right now. That was absolutely gorgeous. And your book has taught me a lot about growing up in the Midwest. Do you think most of us have it wrong? You know, it's not a part of the country that gets written about a lot or portrayed in media very often. And when it does, like, for example, the movie Fargo, casts a pretty long shadow. Where I went to college, everybody ran into my dorm room to hear my mom's answering machine messages because she had that accent. And uh, it was a source of great amusement, but it also was just one very small slice of the pie in terms of what Midwestern is. Well, Prince came from Minneapolis. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a really, really um, a wonderfully uh, uh, diverse culture, uh, more so than it's often portrayed in media, but also I think it gets simplified in a lot of ways. I grew up a reader in a small town in Minnesota and really wanted to see my home state and the kind of people I grew up around represented in fiction. And so I'm writing the books I do to do that. I mean, there are a lot of people doing that uh, as well now. Uh, don't get me wrong. There were fewer in the 1980s when I was first starting to read. But now I feel like I really want to add to the conversation of a broader sense of what a Midwesterner is. Not only that, in this book, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, you're writing from female perspective, multiple female perspectives, and different generations too. So what are the challenges of that? Yeah, there, there might be a couple of guys in this book, but they're not very big characters. Right. I had a few of them have point of view chapters at one point in the first draft, both Stanley and Orville, the husbands of the, of the sisters, but they didn't make the cut. You know, they just <laughs> weren't carrying water. <laughs> I, as part of the editing process of a book, you take a look at each chapter and go, is this necessary to tell the story? And the women were doing all the heavy lifting. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the guys didn't, yeah, they're still in the book, obviously, but uh, the chapters I wrote for them, you know, the novel could survive without. And yeah, I, I go back to my mom's influence here. I feel like, you know, because I put her in the, these characters, they, they they might be more resonant to me or more important to me. They might have more more heart put into them than some of the male characters I've written. So yeah, I'm for curious. me, it's a, it's a personal choice. Um, well, your choice to, to 
get those chapters to take those chapters out or was that oh your uh, well yeah that was a collaboration between my editor and i you know she said take a look at things you can cut this novel feels like it flags at certain points and and so i said how about if we take out stanley norville and then we read and we're like oh yeah <laughs> that was it yeah those guys like their their contribution to the book was largely we like beer <laughs> <laughs> and I can certainly portray them being beer enthusiasts without giving them a, a turn at the microphone. You know, you can view them in the stands enjoying beer just fine. Are Edith, Helen, and Diana, who are the, the main three characters, are they based on real people? Well, Edith is sort of a composite of my two grandmothers, Doris and um, Esther, with some of my mom thrown in. Helen also has some of my mom and some of me. Uh, and Helen has a few other women I've known growing, growing up. Diana is inspired in part by my friend Diana Kowalski from a small town called Mabel, Minnesota. She came from a town where I think she was part of a graduating class of eight people. And now she's an executive at REI in Seattle. So this woman went a long way to get where she was. And I was really inspired, you know, talking to her about her journey. I mean, I've known her for over 20 years. And knowing her throughout this, this time of her life, and she's the same person I met. You know, she's so down to earth and and humble and intelligent and um, approachable. And I, when I when I hear coming of age stories or stories about where someone grows up in a small community, so many times as as a kid, I'd, I'd see them have to leave that community or burn a bridge behind them to advance. And I didn't want to tell that story. I mean, I'm from a small town in Minnesota as well, but I feel I still feel I identify with that hometown. I go back there. I enjoy it there. I didn't feel like I had to reject it. I feel like my experience was I just expanded the world I was in to include my hometown, but also include all these new things. And I wanted to tell that kind of story where someone wasn't burning a bridge, but carrying their influences, their relatives, uh, their past with them into the future and building a broader sense of their identity by adding new things rather than subtracting old things. If you are enjoying the show so far, make sure to subscribe. We post new episodes every Monday. And don't forget to leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Now, back to the show. Well, I have to ask the really tough question about how hard was the research? Oh, <laughs> the research started where I was, well, I was touring for my first book, Kitchens of the Great Midwest. and. You know, like I said, I'm from a small town in Minnesota where authors almost never visited. So it was very important for me to go back to towns, small and mid-sized cities uh, throughout the northern Midwest and stop at the libraries or independent bookstores if they had them and do events. And what, one thing I noticed was all these towns had breweries. Like, this wasn't true 10 years ago. Uh, and so I'd end, I'd end up at a brewery largely because the people that were hosting me in these cities uh, or these small towns would often say, have you been to the brewery? It was a pride of place for a small town. And I became really intrigued in who's opening them. What's the story here? Where are you from? Why are you doing this? And that's, that's what inspired uh, the story that became Diana's narrative in particular in Lager Queen, was seeing this explosion happen all around us of craft beer seemingly coming out of nowhere in the last 15 years. But you know, the research, yeah, I put on a few pounds. My, my uh, doctor asked me if I could cut the beer uh, going forward. And I said, well, I don't know. I, I found a lot of new ones I like. <laughs>
Uh, first of all, how many do you think you visited and how many were actually owned by women? Oh, wow. Uh, I can only think of two that were owned by women. Uh, Urban Growler in the Twin Cities. And, and then one of my hometowns, Spiral Brewery in Hastings, Minnesota, is co-owned. It's owned by a married couple. And there was a few of, few of those. There was Brian and Amanda Trimble in Pierre, South Dakota as well that owned uh, Bill Rice Brewery. The three Weavers out here in Los Angeles County, they're in Inglewood, women-owned, women brewmaster, uh, women running at, at the top of the, uh, the ladder of most levels of operation. And they also happen to be perhaps the most helpful brewery to me outside of Spiral in terms of their transparency about the brewing process, being available to ask follow-up questions. I mean, I, I visited over three dozen breweries personally and did interviews or research at each of them. But the, the two most helpful to me were Three Weavers and Spiral, as it turned out. And as a fiction writer, you know, you're a utopian in, in a sense. You're creating a world that you must want to exist because you're creating it. And I wanted a world with more women brewmasters. So I decided to work that into the story to uh, privilege the female brewmasters in this narrative. Because one of the things I discovered in my research was women invented beer. <laughs> and they were the ones making it for thousands of years until money and religion got involved. And now it's wonderful to see uh, women once again through uh, mentorship programs like the Pink Boots Society uh, move out of just working in a tap room and up into levels of management and ownership and brew mastery. So yeah, I'm, I'm an advocate for all of it. And I wrote this book because this is the world I want to see. One other thing that you did in this book that women are going to love is that you have older women, you have grandmothers killing it in this beer industry. And today, I mean, let, let's face it, more and more people are postponing retirement. Maybe they will never be able to retire. That's just an economic fact. It's not a viable option. Mm -hmm. Edith works multiple jobs. It, it seemed to me as the reader, it was important to you to show the struggle of working class people. Very much. I was raised working class. My dad worked in an oil refinery. My mom was a waitress before she went back to college. My, my aunt was working until just about a year ago. I mean, like I said earlier, these are the women that raised me. This is the world I grew up in. This is what I know. And I wasn't seeing it represented in media very often. Typically, when a grandmother is represented, you get one of two kinds. You either get the really simple, sweet woman, or you get the kind of crass, you know, talks like a sailor, you know, do the opposite type. But 95% of the women I knew in the Midwest were somewhere in the middle. And most of them are still working well into their 70s. And I thought there's no reason they can't do this. I, I've never... I've never doubted the resiliency, the skill, and um, intelligence of a group of grandmothers. I never will in my life. And I wanted to set them free in a brewery and see what kind of beer they would make if they, if they had the chance. And I wrote that chapter last because I knew I would have the most fun writing it. Uh, but like I said, like, these are the women I, I, I know and knew growing up. It's, as you point out, that's an economic reality in our country. And I thought it would be fun to give them an opportunity to create something for themselves that they can put their name on and look back and say, this wasn't just a project I'm making for someone else or money I'm making for someone else. This is something I did uh, stem to stern. And I feel like uh, I wanted to see that. And I wanted to see that in fiction. Something that was really clever that I thought in the book were the chapter titles. 
and they are dollar amounts. There's $20,000, $92.00 and cents, and $31.00. I loved that. Was that your idea? Yeah, yeah. Uh, since the crux of what creates the conflict in the narrative is a dispute over money, I decided to create the chapter titles based on not arbitrary amounts, amounts that are very resonant to the events of that chapter, but reflect that division between the sisters and illustrate how over time, different amounts of money mean very different and significant things to each of these women. Uh, the working title of the book was actually The Money. Uh, <laughs> in, the, in the first draft, privileged that conflict a little more. Uh, but as uh, people like Stanley Norville got sheared away, the book became more centered on the beer story, which is fine. But I still really liked having each chapter oriented around a dollar amount because I also like a little bit of sleuthing as a reader. I liked knowing that that dollar amount would show up somewhere in the chapter and being able to <laughs> and being able to find it. I've had a few readers write me over the years and say, oh, your $5 chapter doesn't have $5 in it. I go, it does. It just doesn't have a dollar sign. You know, you've got to read carefully to find out where that $5 pokes up. So yeah, I mean, it's a funny little thing, but I, I really enjoyed it. And to me, it's also resonant with a point of conflict. I mean, on both sides of my family, I had experienced and still experience relatives who don't speak to each other. And 100% of the time, it's related to money. Sometimes unfairly divided farmland inheritance, which is financial, but quite often some kind of inheritance that was distributed unequally, according to somebody. So yeah, that's, that's what inspired that side of the story was my family history of <laughs> quiet, passive aggressive conflict in the face of economic inequality. <laughs> passive aggressive, I, I, get, I get it. And an inheritance trouble is the, the beginning of, of this story. That, that's, that is a really difficult, part of the book because it, it from from the very first to the very end you know there's also something very interesting and you had brought up your relationship with your grandparents there is such a beautiful relationship in this book that came as as the result of something very tragic between a, the grandmother and, and a, the granddaughter that i think will resonate with a lot of readers and it seemed very real to me. It seemed very organic. Do you hear about that? Yeah, I, I do have people talk about that and talk about that relationship as being as being resonant and important to them. And it means a lot. I mean, it was a relationship I worked really hard on and it was pulled partially from my own experience. Your first book, Kitchens of the Midwest, was about food. This about beer. Today, it seems like we have this desire to experience everything new, new cuisines, new cultures. What was your food experience growing up? Well, I grew up in a, a household in Minnesota that put food on the table, so I can't critique it, but that was the baseline they met. I had a lot of white and brown food growing up, you know, a lot of really basic Midwestern stuff, uh, casseroles, you know, chicken breasts, um, you know, mac and cheese, just the hamburgers, just the basic American stuff, rice roni, hamburger helper, you know, it was not exotic. It was not varied. My parents got little pleasure out of cooking. It was very procedural for them. And the food I ate growing up was mostly very bland, but I knew food could taste good. I'd read about that. I, <laughs> we didn't go out to eat very often. And when we did, that was pretty cool. 
And so I knew as soon as I was making money, uh, which I started doing at 15, so got my first job at a grocery store, as it turns out, then later at a restaurant, I would use my disposable income to go out to eat, to try new kinds of food. And my high school girlfriend, Stacy, and I would drive up to the cities every weekend and try out a new variety of food that we'd never experienced before, Thai food, Greek food, Japanese food, you name it. We tried the Minneapolis or St. Paul's version of all these cuisines in the 1990s. That's what really opened my eyes to what food could be and what was out there. As far as I knew, we were the only people doing it. Like the other people did normal things, like go to concerts or uh, <laughs> um, however teenagers spend their money in the 90s. We, we spent it on shakshuka and sushi and um, soul food. <laughs> I am convinced that most of our problems could be solved if we would just sit down together over food. And, and I think yeah. both of your books have that theme. Very much, yeah. We have such a great tradition of, uh, of local food and regional food in our country. And that's also a real way of celebrating American heritage is by eating what grows in your area and supporting the people that grow it. I can't think of a, a, a better unifier than that. I think we, we all have to eat regardless of what we believe. Um, and I think unifying around that is, is unequivocally uh, a, a good thing. And every time I sit down to write, I think about that. I think about the role of food in my life and um, what, what more I have to learn and what I'm curious about. My, my current book, I'm writing a third novel right now, and it's uh, largely set in a supper club, which in the Northern Midwest is a very particular kind of restaurant that's a little hard to define. I, I once described it as it's as different from a, a Denny's as your grandma's attic is from a hotel room. It's a very particular style of Midwestern restaurant that is dying out. And because of what's happening under COVID, I read in one article in The Atlantic that somewhere between 20 and 80% of the independently owned restaurants in America will be gone by the time the pandemic ceases. And these are exactly the kinds of places we're at risk of missing are these independent family owned, family owned for generations in most cases, rural restaurants that cater to their local community and care about giving them good food. So yeah, I, I think about the role of food in, in our lives and in society every time I sit down and write. I'm gonna to have to read this because Supper Club to me, I, I'm conjuring up something else, more like New York 1940s or, and, and that is not what you're talking about. No, no, I mean, I, th I think that's where they got the name from. Uh, because they started emerging in the Midwest around that time, post-war, and they start appropriated the term supper club from from the places you're talking about in New York, but it's very different. Now, now, true, a supper club in rural Minnesota or Wisconsin could be a place that you celebrate your anniversary, a birthday, a graduation, a retirement. You know, they have nice tablecloths, you know, silverware, all, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, full bar. But you can also go there after a day of fishing or go there right after working on the farm. Like a farmer and lawyer can sit next to each other at the bar in their work clothes and be equally accepted. And it probably is the nicest, best food in the area. Most supper clubs are pretty rural and hard to find. And so you could drive 30 miles in any direction. You won't get a better meal. I know you're not going to tell me who the lager queen is. You're going to have to <laughs> I know who I think the lager queen is. So that's my own theory. But you will tell me your favorite beer. That's a great question. It changes a lot. Um, Wow, I think my favorite beer right now, the beer that I'm going out and, well, picking up curbside, <laughs> is uh, Sky Kraken by Fremont out of um, uh, Seattle, Washington. I'm, I became a fan of theirs since visiting them for the first time probably six years ago. 
but yeah, it's an, it's an IPA. A perfect book to read now, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, J. Ryan Stradle. Thank you so much. I'm Ann Bocock, and thank you for listening to Go Between the Covers, produced by South Florida PBS. To stay connected with us and our guests, check out our show notes or visit us at southfloridapbs.org slash gobtc. Join us next Monday for our final episode of Season 1 with New York Times bestselling author Robert Kolker. His latest book, Hidden Valley Road, is the true story of an all-American family of 12 children, six of the boys diagnosed with schizophrenia. Don't miss it.